0: the scriptures that you find it in the book of Revelation, and we will read this morning the first chapter of this great book of prophecy, and extend the reading to verse 7 of the second chapter. <clears throat> Our reason for reading that first chapter is to have you see with us the connection there is between what is given to us in our text this morning, which constitutes the first seven verses of chapter 2, that you may see it in its proper setting. Revelation 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God, And for the testimony of Jesus Christ, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being, being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with the garment down to the foot, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now we have our text. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast uh, left thy first love, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Thus far our text. I would like to say at the beginning this morning, beloved, that it is our intention, according to the will of God, to call your attention in a series of sermons to these letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Our reason for doing that is because we are of the conviction that the word of God here is very pertinent also to the church of Christ today. We are going to call your attention to that in the course of our series, especially with a view to the practical value which a serious consideration of this portion of Scripture will have for the Church of Christ, and hopefully also for this congregation. It is also necessary at the very beginning, I believe, to point out to you the answers to several questions which would naturally arise when you consider such a portion of Scripture as we purpose to study. The first is, of course, what place do these letters, these seven letters to the seven churches have in the book of Revelation? And I must point out to you that the entire book of Revelation is really a series of visions which the Lord gave to the John, the apostle, the seer of Patmos concerning the things which are to come. All of which must transpire uh, preparatory to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Really, the theme of the entire book of Revelation was most beautifully expressed, I believe, by the late Reverend Hooksma in his so-called commentary on this book when he said, Behold, he cometh. I'd like to stress that idea now and at the very beginning of our series. The Lord is coming. And I believe I told you that when we were with you the last time, that it is the purpose of all preaching to prepare a people for the coming of the Lord. That's what all our preaching is about. And therefore, our study of the book of Revelation, at least of this portion of it, must be keyed to that theme. In the second place, I would point out to you that the very first vision which John received on this Isle of Patmos on the Lord's Day was constituted of two main parts, the first of which, of course, is called to your attention in chapter 1, uh, verses 9 through 20, where you have the vision of the Lord the exalted Lord Jesus Christ walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And the idea of that is that the Lord here walks in the midst of his church. As is pointed out in verse 20 of chapter 1, the candlesticks represent the churches the church of Jesus Christ in its entirety. And it is the Lord who walks in the midst of those churches to observe her, to take cognizance of her, of what she is doing in response to his work of grace within her. And where there has Uh, appeared some uh, fault, uh, something that is worthy of his criticism, Uh, he says so. And where there is a possibility of commendation, he says so. And all of this, of course, is done with a view to uh, preparing (coughs) the Church of Christ for his coming. Uh the second part of that vision were was the seven letters, epistles which Christ uh, dictates must be sent to individual churches that were at that time historically and geographically situated in Asia Minor. They are enumerated in chapter 1, each one in their turn. Uh, these seven churches, of course, are historically existing churches at the time that John received the vision. However, we hasten to add that it is the purpose of Revelation, not simply to limit the word of Christ to seven existing geographically situated churches in the world, but there is also to be understood here uh, a typical significance and a spiritual significance which pertains to the church of Christ, as you may find that church, at any time throughout this entire dispensation. That is, from the time of Christ's exaltation, his ascension into heaven, and his return again upon the clouds of heaven at the end of time. So that these seven letters, you understand, are directed to the Church of Jesus Christ as she may be found at any time throughout the history of this dispensation. And that, of course, makes these seven letters pertinent to us. You must understand, of course, that the Apostle here is not concerned, nor is the Lord, with seven churches that existed 2,000 years ago. but he is interested in his church as it must be consummated, as it must finally appear in the day of his coming. If you can keep that in mind throughout this series, it will be very helpful to you to understand with me the word of God in this portion of Scripture. Uh, These seven letters are therefore directed to the entire church. I think the number seven is also significant here. It is symbolic of the uh, covenant of God as he purposes to realize it through Christ, through the Spirit of Christ, with his people whom he has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Seven is a covenant number. One might ask you why in the ten. That's a complete number of completeness. And I think that uh, it is not so important that we see here the idea only of uh, fullness and completion, but of the fact that God is gathering together a covenant people, his covenant friends. And as you must know by this time, if you have been thoroughly instructed in Protestant Reformed doctrine, then that covenant is central, basic. Everything evolves around the idea of God's covenant. And that's the reason why also this doctrine receives the emphasis that it does in our preaching. (coughs) Particularly, we are interested this morning in the letter which uh, the Lord purposes to send to the Church of Ephesus, and (coughs) Ephesus, of course, is the city, historical city, geographically situated on the west coast of the peninsula of Asia Minor. It is a very uh, worldly city, a very prosperous city where a tremendous amount of commerce and trade was realized throughout that entire section of the world. It was also a city of great learning. There were universities established already in the days of the Apostle in that particular city where young men, young women, came from many miles around to be educated in the doctrines and the philosophies of the day. As we suggested already, it was a very wicked city is an idolatrous city. And the core of that idolatrous worship was uh, dedicated to the great goddess Diana of the Ephesians, of whom you may read particularly in the book of Acts, chapter 19 and following. Uh, The Lord purposed (coughs) to have his church uh, gathered and established in the city. One might ask at this point, wouldn't it have been better that the church be just a little bit more in isolation? Perhaps somewhere out there in the sticks, in the country, uh, where they would not be so easily affected, why Mundane things which were pronounced in the city, and particularly of the idolatrous practices that were predominant there. But the Lord, you know, who is all-wise and who knows what he is doing, he brings his church to manifestation in the midst of that which is evil and perverse. And we must keep that in mind because as we will progress through our studies of these letters to the churches, we find that that church, which is faithful church, is a church also which suffers in the world, suffers persecution, and it is the intention of the Lord that she shall do that because that is the way he molds and fashions that church after his will and counsel, purpose. And so we have a church established in the midst of the world. That doesn't mean, of course, that it is the calling of the church to seek the world and the pleasures of the world. The contrary, of course, according to the scriptures, is truth. It means, then, that that church is going to live and manifest itself there antithetically as the light over against the darkness. That's the purpose, the divine purpose. We must keep that in mind. Uh, we must not go into that mystical uh, conception of separatism, of living apart from the world, that monastic idea that crept into the church in ages past and which is still prevalent even in Reformed circles today. That's not true that we must live apart in the physical sense of the word, but Our separation must be spiritual. That idea is pronounced, I think, when you consider that here was a church that was located in such an evil place and an evil time where she is called to show forth the light which Christ is pleased to shed abroad in her heart. Uh, This church also, as we will see presently a little bit more distinctly, was shepherded by some excellent ministers. The Apostle Paul was undoubtedly the very first to serve this church. He visited this place at least three times, but once he spent the greater part of three years, ministering to them the gospel night and day, not only in their Sabbath assemblies, but also from house to house, indoctrinating that church in all the fundamentals of the truth. And he was succeeded by his son in the gospel, Timothy, who, as you may know if you're acquainted with Paul's letter to the Timothy, was evidently a very sound minister, having been thoroughly indoctrinated by the apostle himself. And Timothy was succeeded by the great apostle of love, who is the secondary author of the book of Revelation and of the letters which we are about to consider. It was evidently from this church that he was brought in the way of persecution to exile to the Isle of Patmos, where he finally uh, passed away as a servant of Christ. So that this church, from the very beginning of her existence, was thoroughly founded and grounded into the truth of the gospel. This is what we must understand. And as we will see now in a moment, uh, the Lord, when he takes observation of this church, also takes cognizance of this fact that she was a church that is well established in the truth. However, there is one thing that is missing in this church and there is a certain defection which the Lord must call to her attention and which is very serious and if it is not repented of will bring that church ultimately to extinction and that is this church has left her first law and this this judgment of Christ is weighted with certain uh, threats and in repentance is encouraged through certain promises which conclude the idea of our text for this morning. And if you can keep all of this in mind, then you will have at least a brief, in brief an idea of the direction in which we plan to go in our discussion regarding the Church of Ephesus. I want to call your attention to this scripture under the theme, The Church That Left Her First Law. And I would have you notice with me, as announced in your bulletin, (coughs) first of all, her commendation, I must remark here that this is notable in every one of the letters. If there is a possibility that the Lord can find something in the church that is substantial, that is good, He not only mentions it and brings this out, but He stresses it and mentions it first of all, very tactfully, He calls attention to the virtues of the church. If there is going to be any criticism, any judgment of that church, it must be done in the light of the commendations which he also uh, places upon the individual church. And so we have commendation. In the second place, her defection, and thirdly, her calling. When we consider, first of all, the commendations which the Lord gives concerning this church, we would stress the point that it is his judgment that this church is sound in doctrine. That's a commendable feature, and it must be stressed also today. When we look about us in the church world, and even in the Reformed community, there is an abundant weakness on this score, and you hear considerable complaint on the part of many, and not to have sound doctrine. If you are a student of church history, you will know that this is repetitious in history, that a church that was proclaiming the doctrines of the scripture and underscoring them, in her preaching, uh, was always criticized <coughs> because there appeared to be a lack of life. And therefore you'll hear the hue and cry of many, we must have life. Not doctrine, but practice. Now, you must understand, of course, that We do not at all minimize the idea of life and of practical spiritual living. That's very important. And it must be stressed, too. No question about that. But I want to call your attention to the fact that it is not first. It cannot be first because you do not have life without the Word. Doctrine and the principles of the truth are fundamental. There can be no life, there can be no practice without sound doctrine. And the angel of the church, and you'll notice that in each one of the letters, the letter is addressed first of all to the angel, that's the minister. Must understand that. That when he is called to the church of Jesus Christ, it is fundamentally, and first of all, his calling to instruct the church of Christ in all sound doctrine. And it means just exactly that. You must know the doctrines of the Scriptures. In our particular churches, we emphasize catechetical instruction. And that's not simply a long rigmarole from kindergarten to the eighth, ninth grade in in matters of history, sacred history. But all of that must be keyed to the truth of the Scriptures to the doctrines of the Word of God, so that when our children and our young people come out of that training, they are prepared not only to make profession of their faith in the church, but to go to live in the church and to maintain the church on the basis of the truth and out of that to live in the world in which the church is called to be a shining light And when the Lord observed the church of Ephesus, the very first thing and the most important thing in his observation was that this church was sound in doctrine. It became very evident when there were men who crept into the church who proclaimed themselves to be apostles of Christ and therefore could speak his word with authority. Apostles were those who were sent of Christ to speak his word, to declare what Christ has said. And these men came into the church. You read that there in the, in the text and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Evidently there were men who came into the church who professed to be uh, inspired by Christ and who spoke his word with authority. But the church of Ephesus who had been founded in the word of God, was able to discern that they were liars. They were false apostles. And therefore, they did not hesitate to judge them as such and to cast them out. And that brings up, the idea that this church of Ephesus was not only strong in doctrine, but was also very efficient and diligent in Christian discipline. The church took observation of her members, and particularly of her ministers, and would deny them the pulpit, when they spoke the lie, as it must be discerned from the Scriptures, from the doctrinal truths in which they had been founded. These two go together, you see. Sound doctrine and Christian discipline. Don't you ever forget it. The church that neglects either one or both is a church that is destined to extinction. And I'm just old enough to know how this works out historically. I've seen it with my own eyes. The Reformed Church of America, for example, if I may mention names, is a church one time that was very sound. Sound in doctrine, sound in life, walk. I can remember in my youth hearing ministers preach in that church that were just as reformed as you found them in the Christian Reformed Church, of which I was a member at that time. Sound preachers. And you had men of faith in the consistory, Staunch reformed men, and I'm telling you, they had beards, and they they were proud of it. They were austere men. When they looked at you, they looked all clean through you. That's the way it was. That was maybe 50, 60 years ago. Don't have that anymore today, with just a few exceptions perhaps. There's no sound preaching in that church anymore, and certainly no discipline. You can almost do anything you please in that church and get away with it. That's what happens. The church is gradually removed from its candlestick because it is not faithful in the fundamentals. And our elders especially must understand this. What comes from this pulpit must be the pure word of the gospel, nothing else. What is taught to our children in the catechism must be the sound doctrines of the scriptures, nothing else. You don't go there just to waste your time and to fill in a certain hour, but you go there with a view to inculcating into the very youth, which is the future of the church, the truth of the scriptures. That's very important. And when you elders, I understand from your bulletin, are going around in your family visitation, you don't go there just to drink coffee. We have a sociable hour with peoples of the congregation. That's not your business. Nor do you go there to ask them how you're getting along and how do you like it in our church. Do you like the friendship and fellowship which you may enjoy here? That's not the first thing that you should be interested in. The very first thing that you should be concerned about is... Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus your Lord? That's fundamental. Is the word of God which is declared to you from Sabbath to Sabbath, dinning into your ears and by the Spirit into your heart, the knowledge of the truth? That's absolutely essential. And when the Lord looked at the church of Ephesus, he saw that this was explicitly the condition of that church. It was a church that was sound in doctrine and in discipline. And therefore also, and that follows, circumspect in walk. To the point where that church was required often even to suffer for the truth's sake. That's very clean, very, very plain, I think. When you look at verse two of our text, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou hast, canst not bear them which are evil and have tried them and that say they are apostles and are not. Has found them liars. I know thy works. There's something very beautiful about that. He doesn't look, the Lord does not just simply look at us, but He knows who we are and what we do. Don't you ever forget it. He's not stuck up there somewhere 93 million miles away from the earth so he doesn't know what's going on. He's walking around in the middle of the strips and he's observing church. Also this church. I know your works. And those works He distinguishes as labor. Labor, of course, is work with toil. Burdensome work. Work that brings grief and sorrow. When you are faithful, you not only declare the truth, but you also live it, You're going to be sneered at. You're going to bear reproach and suffering and perhaps ultimately death. I know you labor. You work not only diligently but you labor with great burden of grief and sorrow, pain, suffering. I know your patience, that is, the ability to bear up under these circumstances and not go down, not faint. You endure all things for the truth's sake, for my sake. And thou hast there them which are evil, and you give evidence that you cannot bear them. You cannot bear for a moment that which is evil. That idea, of course, has in it also a disciplinary character. That means that church was sharp to discern that which is contrary to the Scriptures and to not only put their finger on it, but to denounce it. And that, too, must be evident in the church of Jesus Christ. We must not carry along a discipline case for years and years and not bring an end to it. It must be done with dispatch. When that which is evil is among us, it must be denounced until it is rooted up and cast out. The church must remain pure. Not only in doctrine, but in life. And this was true of the church that was in ap- Ephesus. I know thy works. And you would say, if we would stop right here, what a beautiful church. That's the church I want to belong to. I have a minister who knows the truth and he proclaims it in all of its parts, never misses anything, in which we can be thoroughly instructed. It's a church which, to all intents and purposes, desires to walk holily before God in the light of all of his good commandments. Where we may fellowship together in those things that have the highest and eternal value. It's a beautiful church. But the Lord doesn't stop here. You know? If there are things that are to be commended, Well, he will say it, and he did. And he says it first. But if there is anything that is wrong, there is a certain condition in that church that merits his judgment, then he continues. And this is precisely what he does here in this text. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. (coughs) Thou hast left thy first love. Uh, You might be surprised at this. And of course, you naturally ask the question, how in the world is that possible? Will you have such wonderful spiritual condition here where the people of God understood the Scriptures, knowledge of the truth and to all intents and purposes were living according to that word how in the world could there be anything like this thou hast lost thy first love. and there are those of course who explain this text in the light of individual Christian experience and they present the church as the individual who perhaps suddenly or gradually was converted and brought to the knowledge of the truth and who at that moment of his conversion was elated, excited, full of activity, faith, love, and eventually as time went on, uh, the things which appeared to him at first to be so sound and of principal significance began to lose their significance for him. And in his spiritual life he became lukewarm and perhaps for a time even uh, lives and walks like the children of the world. And so, they, those who explain this text say that is what happens also to the church. I want to point out to you, beloved, that <coughs> there is no comparison between the church and the individual here. We mustn't do that. In fact, what happens in the life of the individual believer may be even a salutary, good, It's good, you know, in our personal lives, when we come to the point in our experience where we say, well, I'm not living like I used to, full of enthusiasm and full of zeal for the cause of God. I find so many different things that interfere with my life, my television and my reading material and my business and all of that it all encroaches on my life so that I'm not able to exuberantly and full of uh, passion and zeal uh, devote myself to the service of the law and of his kingdom. I say that's good. That's good that we have that experience because that always brings us back where we ought to be. And it's quite natural too. There's nothing unnatural about that in the life of the child of God. It isn't so, you know, that when you become a child of God, that then you ride over the circle of the earth and you have no more depression. You don't come down. The fact of the matter is, if you are spiritually alive, you discover that that's true every day. You wonder, at last, sometimes, how in the world you can even be a child of God. And you say that to the Lord, too. How in the world can I be thy child when I live like I do? Why, that's awful how I live. And the Lord says you must repent. And, of course, you confess your sin and you find grace and forgiveness and restore again unto your spiritual life. That's true in the life of every child of God. What you must understand here, beloved, is that the Lord is not addressing so many individuals, individual believers in the church of Christ, but he is addressing the church of Jesus Christ. That church, as she comes organically to manifestation in the world, from generation to generation, as she develops historically. I'm going to have occasion again, later on in another sermon presently, to point this out to you particularly, how this can happen. And that means that in the development of the church, you always have this, those old people that were responsible for the organization and establishment of that church, pass away. The time comes that they become old and they pass away. There's another generation comes up. That generation that did not, for example, live through the experience of history. All that they know about that history is second-hand tradition. They may like it. They may support it. They may say, we stand on the shoulder of our forebears. And that's proper, of course. There's nothing wrong with tradition, but it mustn't be just merely tradition. There's nothing wrong with knowing the truth of the scriptures intellectually, so that this thing is pounded into our minds and into our understanding. But there must also be a spiritual apprehension, appropriation of that truth. It must be that that doctrine is such that it lives in your fiber. That it motivates you. That it principles your whole life. It's not just something dead that you carry around with you as a book or a suitcase. But it is something that lives in your soul. And it happens invariably in the history of God's kingdom and covenant in the world of the church of Jesus Christ as it develops from generation to generation that you have a generation that knows the truth and outwardly conforms to the word of God so that as far as discipline is concerned, they are immune to the judgment of discipline. They live and walk circumspectly, but in their life and in their heart and in their walk, there is not that zeal that burns within them. That love of God, the love of Christ, the love of His truth. I think I see that, especially was that true before? We retired from the ministry when we had a weekly teach catechism. We discovered this all the time. Children, if they learned their lessons, did it because their father and mother told them they had to. Father and mother talked to it that they did. <clears throat> as soon as they recited, that whole instruction just flew out of their mind. They just learned it for a moment. You can have that. Happens all the time. Teachers in the Christian school observe this too, daily. Got a head full of knowledge, but you don't have a heart. You don't have a heart that vibrates, pulsates with the love of God with the love of Christ this is what happened and when that generation becomes a majority beloved as it often does in history then the church goes astray and then not only do you lose your first love but you have all of these other condemnations that appear in all of these other letters addressed to the church of Christ Apostasy begins with the loss of the love of God. Now, don't misunderstand that. That does not mean that there is a falling away of grace. I say once more, the distinction here is not concerning the individual, but concerning the church. The individual child of God doesn't lose the love of God. That's forever impossible. He is preserved in that love, no question about it. But the church can, and it often does. And this is precisely what was happening here to the church of Ephesus. And Mark, well, beloved, this church was at the very beginning of its apostasy when it lost or left the love of God right. And the Lord who loves his church and remonstrates with her, calls her to repentance. And that idea is expressed more than once here in this text. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art falling, and repent, and do the first work, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. And repentance, here as it is in all of the New Testament scripture, is always fundamentally change of mind and of direction. Conversion is the result of it. You're walking in a sinful way and when you repent, you turn around and you go back. Remember the first words. That means remember how you were at the very beginning. It's very important that the whole life of the church be maintained precisely as Christ forms that church, a vibrant, living, loving church that responds to His Word and maintains that Word in, not only in her individual life, but also in her practice in the world. That's important. Repent. Do the first works. Go back. Oh, that's an entirely different theme than you hear in the world today, you know. In the world today, forget about it. We just had that in the last election. We've got to get get rid of that old stuff. Get rid of Carter. Get rid of his administration. We're going to have everything new. And now after the election, you know, that's all we're talking about. What's going to happen now? We must go on. Progress, progress. Well, the Word of God says, if you have been walking in the wrong way, you better go back. You go back to the beginning, where you came from, what you were, and look at yourself as I see you. And, beloved, this is you're going to hear again and again in this series. When we get through with this series, you're going to see yourself and myself precisely as the Lord sees us. And that is very, very important. We don't care what people say about us, what man has to judge, but it's very important that we understand clearly what the Lord sees in us and how He judges us. And our judgment must be precisely as He is. Or we're lost as the Church of Christ in the world. Don't you ever forget it. And this is so important, and I want our, especially our young people, our young married people, who are bringing up families, to understand this. You are the future of this Church. The furthest possible projection of it And these little children are still father projection of this church. If this church is going to continue in the truth, then it must continue also in the love of God so that you respond in that love. Not only over against the doctrine and the discipline of this church, but also in your life and in your walk. And the Lord seals this judgment with a threat. If you do not repent, you don't listen to me. And I'm telling you this at the beginning of your departure. And there is no future for you but to be pulled out of your place among the candlesticks. And that means destroyed forever you become extinct. That's what's going to happen. But if you listen to me, and you do what I tell you, and have an ear to hear what I'm saying to you, and what the Spirit says, and to him that overcometh, will I give to uh, eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Uh, that's typical, of course. The picture was there already at the beginning of history. And the Lord began to form his church. There was a paradise, the midst of which was a tree of life, which if one ate of it would live forever. In the kingdom of God, which he is going to realize, there is also paradise with the tree of life, and they that are obedient and faithful, who return to their first law, shall eat of it, and have communion and fellowship with God in Christ. And enjoy him forever. That's the promise. And therefore, we must say to you this morning, beloved, if you are under this category of having lost your first love, repent. Return to that love. Honor the word of God and the truth. Not only with your lips,